0: you have just been listening to Nikki Haley facing voters just five days ahead of the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire. I'm Abby Phillip in New York.
1: And I'm Caitlin Collins in Washington. This is our continuing live coverage of CNN's town hall with Nikki Haley. Haley saying during that town hall, among other things, that she is not bothered by the frontrunner Donald Trump's attacks on her personally. Also rejecting his claim of outright presidential immunity, also saying that she would preemptively pardon him, or that she would not preemptively pardon him if he is convicted. Also, wading back into the middle of that controversy over her comments on racism. Let's start here with the takeaways of everything we saw there. Audie Cornish, you're here with us. What I mean, this is a, a pivotal moment for Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, uh, New Hampshire means so much for her campaign. What did you make of how she did tonight?
2: Well, she clearly wanted to have this avenue to talk to people directly. In the last debate with Ron DeSantis, she didn't exactly wow people with that performance. And so I think being able to talk to people, being able to kind of expand on her stump speech one last time was very helpful. Um, You know, I think it was interesting that Jay kind of brought up some of these thornier issues for her, including race, which continues to bedevil her despite her having been a governor of a southern state and having had to tackle these things head. On already, but she's—I um, think she is following in the footsteps of many others who have been in the campaign. Vivek Ramaswamy, also Tim Scott, and of course also Ron DeSantis, who you know talks about Florida being where woke goes to die. Any conversation about race as a problem, as in a broader system, cultural system, is really frowned upon. And I think she is a good example of a very conservative um, approach, which is to say, my personal achievement is an example that can minimize longer historical struggles
1: till we covered the trump white house together so we knew nikki haley in her role as as trump's un ambassador when she was asked about his attacks calling her by her birth name which she doesn't go by she's gone by nikki for decades she didn't really take the opportunity that that some may have expected to to kind of go after him she just said she didn't take it personally and that she knows donald trump well what did you make of that
3: yeah she basically decided not to take the punch that she had at Donald Trump in terms of Knowing that Donald Trump was on another network attacking her, she decided that she was not going to attack him, in part because she realizes that she needs some of his voters, in part because she's taking it as a strategy. Yes, she did ramp up some of her attacks on Donald Trump. She did say that he was too old. She did say that chaos follows him. She talked about him uh, increasing the debt and not being able to secure the southern border and letting fentanyl in and attacking China. And she made a number of talking points against Trump that she's been willing to use, uh, but she hasn't been willing to take him on one-on-one. Trump, as we have seen, as we have covered him, is not someone who's going to pull punches. He's someone who's going to go for the jugular, and she has not shown that she's willing to respond in kind just yet. That may be a strategy. We'll have to see how long it works for her, but it, it does uh, appear that she's not willing to attack him in the same way that he's going to be attacking her for the next several days. Yeah.
1: her Part of her strongest criticism seemed to be of his handling of the Taliban and inviting them to Camp David. Rina, I wonder, wonder what you thought of how the governor did in this moment where she's trying to argue this is a two-person race.
4: There was a whole lot to love tonight, and I think there was a whole lot to not love. <laughs> it was equal parts for me. Um, her grasp of foreign policy was perhaps the sharpest and the most clear I've seen it so far. Uh, there were multiple mentions of mental health, and and many times she spoke about lifting people up. So that aspirational tone I think she's taken, she knows that's going to work in New Hampshire. I'm not at all surprised by how she conducted herself tonight. It was um, with a hopefulness that I, I think she has felt like has been missing throughout the primary. And yes, we're still very much in the early stages. But... Her contrast to Donald Trump, I I don't think has gotten stark enough yet. I still think she can do more. Um, Look, in the racist country answer, she failed. She never gets it right. I myself am also a brown girl from a rural state. I was born and raised in West Virginia. She, She can't get it right. She's timid. She loses sort of control every time she wants to talk about this country's original sin coming out and talking about things on their face is just not something she's good at. And I think that's where she leaves some people lukewarm about supporting her.
1: What did you think?
5: Well, I, look, I thought, first of all, I think the, the crowd seemed to really warm to her tonight. I thought she sort of had a pretty solid performance there. I think they were all very appreciative of the work that she's put in there, right? I mean, a lot of these folks, these voters in New Hampshire, you know, six months ago, they had no idea who Nikki Haley was. And now she's in a striking distance of Donald Trump and you know, potentially poised to to you know compete very strongly for, um, for the for the win there um, because she's put in that work, um, and I think she is very polished. I would agree with Rena that she's um, very good on policy. She can go deep on policy, uh, strong command and control on a lot of the issues um, that she feels strongly about national security, foreign policy. But I also agree with Rena in that she doesn't necessarily yet have that really crystallized closing message, and. That is going to be the key, I think, differentiator in the next couple of weeks on whether she finishes a strong second or in the next couple of days, whether she finishes a strong second or actually really does close us out and win.
1: I Audie, mean, there was one moment where it was a contrast of what Trump has been saying, even just as of this hour, and what she was saying, which is on what Tuesday is going to look like, who can go and cast their votes. Trump has been falsely claiming that Democrats can go and vote in New Hampshire. They cannot, registered Democrats cannot go. But New Hampshire does have a lot of independent voters, and they are expected to show up on Tuesday. Nikki Haley has made no secret that she is trying to appeal to them, and she said tonight, you know, she welcomes everyone to the Republican Party, what do you make of how that could affect what we see happen on Tuesday?
2: Well, it's not just Trump. I'd want to look at that media ecosystem kind of holistically. There is an ongoing dialogue that is basically dismissive of New Hampshire in a way, basically saying, look. Democrats, they could, you know, jump in. Independents could jump in there. That's not the real party somehow, right, the way that Iowa is, or et cetera. Um, and I think that's what you're hearing in that rhetoric from Trump as well, that like, well, don't take this one too seriously because if she does well, then that means it must be the Democrats <laughs> at play. And I think that's what is hanging over all of this. You guys have talked about how it's tough for her to be different. No one can be different in a party where you cannot split from the figurehead of the party. There's no way around it. And so in a party where people are angry about DEI, you're not going to talk about race. In a party where people feel like the country is overextending itself in foreign entanglements, then your foreign policy expertise and policy ideas um, have nowhere to go with, with no real interest. So I think she's always been a little bit stuck because she, in a way... Approaches politics the way we did in the past. And by past, I mean six to seven years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable moment to see this, as it is our closing argument to these voters in New Hampshire. Everyone here, stick around in Washington. Abby, just a remarkable look at what Nikki Haley is saying as she is trying to make these closing arguments, given New Hampshire is one of the states where, where she could perform the best.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's getting down to the wire, and you can tell based on really the kind of focus that she brought to this panel. She spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. We're going to discuss all of that with our panel here in New York. I want to do – I do want to play, though, the moment that they were talking about a little earlier. She was asked again – I don't even know how many times it's been at this point – about her comments on, <laughs> on race. And, and I just want to play – this is when Jake followed up with her uh, to push back a little bit on something she had said earlier. Listen –
6: Just to push back a bit, because I was a history major in New Hampshire. Um, You're talking about the ideals of America, but America was founded institutionally on many racist precepts, including slavery.
7: But when you look, at said all men are created equal. I think the intent, the intent was to do the right thing. Now, did they have to go fix it along the way? Yes, but I don't think the intent was ever that we were going to be a racist country. The intent was everybody was going to be created equally. And as we went through time, they fixed the things that were not all men are created equal.
0: So that answer, uh, she kind of doubles down here. She says, well, it says all men are created equally, so that's what they meant, but... Is that really what they meant? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, is that really what they meant? That's what they meant, perhaps
8: philosophically, theoretically speaking, but that wasn't what the reality was, right? Uh, But the Republican Party, and Joe and I were just talking about this, I mean, racially speaking, we are a pretty homogenous party. It is the facts. We're not Democrats. And most of those voters do not want to be lectured on issues about race. And this isn't a new phenomenon that's unique to Nikki Haley. Even Tim Scott, a black American who was running also had a very difficult time talking about race for the very same reasons that Nikki Haley is, and it's because many Republican voters don't want to be lectured on it.
9: But can I just say, I wrote a piece for CNN.com about this today, as a matter of fact, and, and talked about her other three times she couldn't get it right. This is gaslighting. It's not just, I mean, it's not about lecturing people. The white supremacist doctrine was, let's slaughter the Indians. They're inferior. Let's have chattel slavery and bring black people over here and make them work the land because they're inferior. I mean, and this has become a mythology that we're still grappling with when we talk about systemic racism. By the way, when we talk about sexism, you know, it was white landowning men, not low income white people, not women and black folks. Finally, we were three-fifths of a human being. So it's not that hard, I think, to acknowledge. And I think we, you know, we have seen with Donald Trump how dangerous it is to have leaders who like to, you know, paint their own version of history and can't accept or talk about the truth, the hard truth. And she stands up there and tries to say, Well, I'm a truth teller, but you can't even, and particularly as a Southern governor, my God, South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union. You can't acknowledge. By the way, when she ran for governor in 2010, she said it's about tradition and change. I mean, she has the talking points. It's, well, it's, yeah, uh, it's the a other different thing
8: Republican I, Party but, today. That's the problem,
0: Michael. Why
9: can't well, that she is just problem.
0: accurately describe the history? She doesn't have to say that. She doesn't have to uh, say that. That's the way America is. Mm-hmm. But she can't. I'm looking at her answer again. She never once talks about slavery. She just doesn't say it.
8: Yeah, and and look, I I think there's a propensity for some of those voters, certainly not all, uh, who believe that they have been painted with a broad brush as being racist or being bigoted. And and I think one of the reasons why many of them have sort of grappled towards Donald Trump is because he sort of told them that you're not. And what these sort of elitist individuals on the West Coast or the East Coast have described you as are because of their ignorance about you as a people, about your values, about the things that you find important. And so I think there's a lot of context that we're oftentimes missing here when discussing contemporary politics. It's a lot easier to just say, oh, it's just, easy to talk about race. But when you're running in this version of the Republican Party, that is not the case.
0: But you that's the it. thing. It's Let easy. Joe get in here. I mean, Joe, <laughs> do you think that this is because she is trying to placate a part of the Republican Party that does not want to confront
10: race. I mean, look, this is an election year. Everybody is in the placation business. Unfortunately, we end up having the lowest iteration of the argument, often particularly on issues of great pertinence, certainly race being one of them. So, yes, I I think that there, there, there has been this war. Politically speaking, on the left and the right, to say are we going to effectively weaponize the pain of black people or are we going to ignore the pain of black people? But I sit here today, I'm forty years old. I'm you know, I'm born in the nineteen eighty-three. And when I turned five years old, I ended up going to a private school, not a public school, because a week prior, the city of Yonkers had been found in default of a mandatory desegregation order for our public schools and public housing. That was 1988. We're not even talking about the 60s or the 70s. So I think that at some point, it is possible For Republicans, for Americans writ large to understand that race is a very real part of the story of America. But I think what many Republicans are trying to emphasize is that that racist history does not have to define who we are. And in fact, yes, going back to our founders, they employed us or empowered us with the mechanics for change. A document that was actually built into the DNA allowed us to be able to use that very same document to make sure that black people, that all people, could be able to use this government as a mechanism to have the America we all deserve.
11: And I think it shows a a stunning lack of leadership on this issue, because I do know she knows the right answer, and I know she has it. And it's now the fourth time we've heard her answer this question, and I keep thinking of John McCain when he was confronted by a voter, 2008 cycle, who tried to push the racist birther conspiracy theory. And instead of trying to pander to get that person's vote, he took a teachable moment to say, that's wrong. That's not true. We don't believe that and believe in that as a country. That's what's missing here is I realize there's an element of the right that does not want to be lectured about race. Mm-hmm. But that element of the right needs to learn and they need to grow and they need to be spoken, have true spoken to power. And it's a missed opportunity for them. You her.
0: know, Joe, I-, I feel like you could just let's take a closed captioning of your comments and send it over to the Nikki Haley campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they need a little bit of help I mean, look, working
10: on that I answer. I don't want to beat up on, on Nikki Haley. I, I think... We have a difficult time talking about race because people want to basically take the cliff notes of Dr. King, whether it's, you know, uh, you know riots are the language of the unheard or whether they want to talk about uh, Mal- you have Malcolm X talking about how, you know, northern white liberals are in many ways the greatest threat to black freedom. So there is a Martin for everyone. There is a Malcolm yeah. for everyone. And what we need to actually focus on, what are the greatest threats to the black community today, which unfortunately was not talked about in that mm-hmm. town hall. It's about the civil rights issue of our time. It is ed- Education. It is black children being trapped in zip codes by virtue of the color of their skin and not getting the education They deserve to be able to know with the name on the ballot or even how to balance their own checking account
0: All right, everyone stand by for us coming up next we will fact check that town hall you just saw plus We'll get some reaction from a Trump supporter Matt gates about Nikki Haley's rejection of Trump's immunity claims This is CNN special live coverage
1: And joining me now for a fact check on what we heard at CNN's Town Hall with Governor Nikki Haley, Tom Foreman. Tom, what caught your attention that you heard in that hour in New Hampshire?
6: One of the things that really uh, caught our ear was when she was asked about whether she would support a recent bipartisan deal in Congress to expand the child tax credit. This gets kind of technical, but listen to what she said.
7: I'm for child care tax credits for everyone. If you're going to do it, do it across the board and make sure that it's fair. Look, when you look at the welfare system and you look at all of those other things, when you look at those programs, the goal that I want to look at is what are we doing to lift them up? What are we doing to make life better for them?
6: It would seem here that she is mischaracterizing how the child tax credit works a wide swath of american families are already eligible for and they can claim the child tax credit very low income and very high income families cannot this agreement Calls for increasing that might be the, the Nikki Haley campaign amount. calling you, Tom. Yeah, it could be. It could be. <laughs> yeah, they come they, they have a complaint there. Um, in any event, <laughs> this would possibly open up some more in the bottom. The bottom line is, she uses an opportunity to launch into the well-known uh, sort of Republican trope of saying welfare programs are unfair because they help this group, they don't help that group. Uh, you may agree with that if you wish, but nonetheless, it, it, there did seem to be some mischaracterization here and a little bit of misleading to say, oh, these are all the same thing when that's. Not really all the same thing when you talk about the child care tax credit, which almost anybody can get if you pay money for child care. So that's a possibility on that. Another thing that she talked about, Caitlin, that was very interesting, uh, had to do with electric cars and the idea of climate change and what the Biden administration is trying to do to maybe address that. Listen.
7: Have to have as many electric cars. You know, everybody's got to drive an electric car by 2033. That's not, you don't live in extremes. Instead, yes, we acknowledge that China and India are a massive emitter when it comes to that and that we need to call them out on it. But you also look at what's the transition. Rather than demonizing producers, partner with the producers
6: she and other republicans keep trying to characterize the biden administration as putting out a mandate for electric cars saying to consumers you gotta get them that's just the way it is that's not the case they're very much in favor of electric cars in the biden administration they want to push consumers they want to push manufacturers to move more toward this technology but they very specifically have not put in some kind of big mandate to tell americans what to do or how to live we looked at an awful lot more of what she had to say go to CNN.com. You can see it all.
1: can always count on you, Tom Foreman. Thank you for that. Thanks, Kate. Up next, we'll speak about Haley's response to former President Trump's new immunity claims. Plus, is House Speaker Mike Johnson's job in jeopardy after another deal to avoid a government shutdown? We'll ask a Republican congressman right after this.
12: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The
2: assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events.
13: At this moment,
2: the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
7: Obviously, if a president is doing something and it's related to, you know, whether it's terrorist threats or something like that and people die, that's one thing. But do you get... Just total freedom to do whatever you want? No, that's never the way it was intended to be. There needs to be accountability. No one is above the law.
0: More tonight on Nikki Haley's town hall, where she, as you listen to there, rejected Donald Trump's argument that presidents need immunity, even if they cross the line. Republican and Trump supporter Matt Gates of Florida joins me now. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Who is right here? Is it Nikki Haley or is it Donald Trump?
14: Well, I think there are probably some anti-war pacifists who would love to prosecute Barack Obama or George W. Bush for military airstrikes or drone strikes. So there's presidential immunity that exists. The reasonable debate that's going on is the extent of that immunity. Bloomberg Law just published a piece from some Emory Law School professors where they debated whether or not uh, Trump's point was legitimate. And it really is an unresolved question. I don't have the answer. The Supreme Court will figure it out. In the meantime... What are we doing here, Abby? This primary contest concluded in Iowa, where Donald Trump had an overwhelming victory. Like Nikki Haley is competing in New Hampshire, where she's eight points behind. It's her best state. And... Our firewall, the Trump firewall, is South Carolina, un- undeniably Trump country. So while Joe Biden is out campaigning and advertising in swing states, this seems to be an incredible waste of time. Well,
0: look, as you know, the way that the primary process works is that you don't just win one state and, and then get to claim the whole thing is over. Uh, it's it's playing out so that the voters can see what the candidates have to say. But but Congressman, just to follow up on that, Trump said that presidents who, quote, cross the line should get quote, total immunity. I wonder, do you think that if by that same logic, if Joe Biden ordered SEAL Team Six to
14: assassinate Donald Trump, would you okay with him having immunity for that? undeniably, I wouldn't be. So there is immunity. We all agree to that. There has to be some limit to it. I think you described an extreme case. But uh, the confines of that immunity in something like an election integrity contest where President Trump would have a legitimate federal interest in what's going on in an election contest where he was concerned about fraud would seem to me to fall within the envelope of an immunity that would not be limitless, but would cover the conduct of President Trump.
0: I want to turn to what's happening on Capitol Hill. Earlier this evening, the House voted to avoid a government shutdown. Speaker Johnson, he barely squeaked by, getting the votes that he needed from your conference to pass that short-term spending bill. 106 Republicans, yourself included, opposed it. Right before voting, you said House Republicans have failed the test of fighting in this moment. In your eyes, is this a failure of Speaker Johnson's?
14: It's a failure of all of ours. Actually, 108 of us voted against it. That's significant because 107 voted for it. So a majority of Republicans in the House did not support this measure. It was advanced with the assistance of Democrats. And if this is the way we're going to govern, I fear we won't be in the majority longer. We have gone to the border. We have shown that the border is a major issue. I wish the border was way more central to the discussion between Jake Tapper and Governor Haley this evening. And it's not central to our strategy on the government funding dispute. That's my criticism of the approach we've taken. Uh, Speaker Johnson has assured me today in an extended meeting that we had that before this March deadline is reached, we're going to be passing border security bills. We're going to be putting pressure on the Senate to take those up and then ultimately include that in in the long-term uh, ne- negotiated deal that we have to put together mm-hmm. in divided government.
15: So are
0: you comfortable with um, the compromise that Speaker Johnson made with Democrats to fund the government at effectively the same level that it was funded at uh, under a deal that Kevin McCarthy brokered with President Biden.
14: Are you comfortable with that? Well, it's not exactly the same. You see, the Johnson deal claws back $20 billion of the $50 billion in side deals that Kevin McCarthy lied to us about. That alone justifies his ouster. And I wish that Johnson would have gotten us more clawed back from the McCarthy side deals. And it certainly was a disappointment that he didn't. But with McCarthy, it wasn't just that he was doing deals with Democrats. It was the duplicitous nature. It was continuing to tell us one thing, to do another, and then to have these off-screen uh, negotiated agreements that were seemingly binding the House in the absence of any vote. The other thing is that McCarthy had a different majority, Abby. We had a four-seat majority, but then Kevin took his marbles and went home. We expelled George Santos. Bill Johnson became the president of Youngstown State. And so it's hard to judge Johnson by precisely the same standard as you would judge McCarthy because he doesn't have the same majority McCarthy had, in part because McCarthy left. Well, you... You kicked McCarthy out of his
0: job. You you forgot to include that part. There are 434 of us who are willing to do the job without being Speaker. Look, just one last thing. I mean, look, you're saying you cannot hold Speaker Johnson to the same standard, but he's now passed two continuing resolutions, which you said was unacceptable when Kevin McCarthy did it. Uh, Is Speaker Johnson's job in
14: jeopardy, if only for that reason? No, again, as I said, it wasn't one thing with McCarthy. It was an accumulation of misrepresentations, lies, and the sense that we were being sold out time and again in these negotiations. With Johnson, he's been very clear up front when he has a one seat majority uh, having to balance the needs of a diverse caucus, trying to get us into a fighting posture. It is my hope, it is my expectation that we get into that fighting posture before taking the third strike of a third continuing resolution so based a third on my conversation with the, resolution with the Speaker. Would- be a third it,
0: strike in your view? That
14: would be the end if he were to I do th- it a third time? I think that's the speaker's view. I don't think the speaker wants to do another continuing resolution. Frankly, I don't even think he wanted to do this one. Now, getting our appropriations bills passed, fighting for those policy objectives that matter to Republican voters, that's how we broaden the majority. We don't broaden our majority by cowering in fear. We have to be bold. And I, I hope this is the speaker who can do that for us.
0: Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for joining us.
14: Thanks, Abby. Over to you, Caitlin.
1: Great interview, Abby. We've got our panel here back in Washington with me. And Kevin, I wonder what you make of of hearing that. And also, as we've got, you know, this immigration deal that Senate Republicans are are on board with and signaling very strongly they want to do. Meanwhile, former President Trump is saying Mike Johnson should not do this deal.
5: Yeah. And I I think, you know, Mike Johnson, when he became speaker, I said, this is kind of It's kind of like getting the job of being the drummer in Spinal Tap, right? You just (laughs) you never know really how long that job is going to last. And it it looks like we're right back where we were a couple of months ago. It's just kind of wondering, is he going to be able to really have the leverage to sort of manage the conference through through to a solution? I think it's going to be a day to day question that we're going to be we're going to be answering. Um, I think on the immunity question, you know, I think it's. It's it's clear that the president's going to have some president, former President Trump's going to have people rally around him and make the argument that he can. But the idea that it's complete and the idea that it's total is just, I think, one that's going to be tested very rigorously by the courts and Congress. And that's I expect where that legal argument will continue to go.
1: But I mean, he is continuing to make this argument that that, while also simultaneously arguing that Joe Biden could be indicted if he returns Mm -hmm. to the Oval Office. And it's become this this test to see if Republicans will back him up on it. And I thought it was notable what Nikki Haley said tonight about that. She said, of course, you don't have carte blanche. Right
4: immunity. Yeah. And it was really important for her to say nobody's above the law. And I really liked her answer tonight because it was very clear. It was concise. And it, it made sense because what Trump does every day is a little bit more confusing than the day before in how he talks about potential protections for a president, whether he's back in office or what Biden could even be under. I, I think the situation when it comes to immunity, and you hear guys like Gates talk about what um, what Trump really essentially could get if he's back in office. It's the kind of thing that just goes all in line with the revenge politics that a lot of the Republican electorate actually quite likes. And that's been disturbing for me because I don't come from that era. I come from this compromise era. And and to see a lot of people have an appetite for it, I think that's what Trump drummed up. And that's why I would submit to you that he was even successful in Iowa. Um, I think he fared all right. I think he, he could have done better in Iowa. But people like this stuff. He's, he's here to uh, not just re. Uh, live Litigate some of what happened in the time after he's left the White House. He's here for a remaking of the presidency, and I think some Republicans are
5: all right with that. I think but, that's right with the base, but I, I just—it's that's what makes his profile toxic with the, probably the most important swing voters around the country. Which sure. is what happens sure. when you
1: get and the right. voters that Nikki Haley is bringing right. in right now. But on that front, you know, when you heard Nikki Haley say tonight something that stood out to me uh, about pardoning Trump, she has made clear she would pardon Trump if he got convicted. But she said she would not do so preemptively.
3: Yeah, I thought that was interesting in terms of putting forward the message that nobody is above the law. She would essentially allow Trump to go through a trial, be convicted, uh, and potentially even be sentenced before she put down a pardon. And I think that is important because there is a wing of the Republican Party. There are there's a sector of the Republican Party that says that if Trump is convicted of a crime. He should not have a leadership position within our party. And I think she's being willing to allow that process to play out is a a part of her calculus in staying in the race, because Trump is going to be facing a number of these trials while this race is playing out. He wants a number of Republicans to back him and support him. He wants to have support for this idea of presidential immunity. He wants other people to be on the record talking about that. But Nikki Haley is saying, Not only that she does not believe in that, but also that she would be willing to see this trial play out and see what happens uh, and potentially see what kind of political benefit she may get from Trump going through the legal process and potentially being convicted of one of the multiple crimes that he has been charged with.
2: And that's such a far way away from the words of, say, like an Elise Stefanik, who has been going around describing January 6th, people who have been convicted of crimes as hostages, right, because they are incarcerated for actual crimes. It just gives you a sense of the gulf between um, the very strong like, Trump supporter and a lot of other people, <laughs> right? Uh, the centrist and the general election voter that Nikki Haley is actually aiming her message at, which is saying something so basic. What if we let the process play out in the courts? Like, you know, what if, like, that's just, like, so basic to our Constitution (laughs) even. Um, And yet that is considered, like, a a very different message than what you would hear from Trump.
1: Yeah, I also wonder how he would respond to that. We may soon learn. Thanks, everyone. Stay with me because up next here we have a progressive Democrat from Capitol Hill who will offer her response to what we heard from the Israeli Prime Minister today, saying that there will be no Palestinian state post-war at odds with with, with what you've heard from President Biden and his top aides. When the Palestinians demand anything,
7: Israel has every right to demand security. Israel has every right to say, we don't want terrorists on our border. And so will there ever be a two-state solution? Maybe, but Israel has to defend themselves first. And as long as there are terrorists off of their border, I totally understand why they don't trust the Palestinian Authority and why they know they have to protect their people.
1: That was Nikki Haley tonight, as we are now more than three months into the Israel Hamas war with growing frustrations between the Biden administration and the Israeli government over controversial comments that were made by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu earlier today as he appeared to reject the idea of a Palestinian state eventually being formed. Joining me tonight is Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California. Congresswoman, it's great to have you back here. Thank you for being here. I just wonder what your reaction was to hearing Prime Minister Netanyahu basically rule out this idea of the even eventual establishment of a Palestinian state, despite what you have heard from the White House saying that that they believe that there should be one.
16: Thank you for having me tonight. Uh, First, Benjamin Netanyahu, just like Donald Trump, cares about power and he's trying to stay out of jail. Secondly, uh, I, when we were in the majority, Democrats were in the majority, I chaired the Committee on Appropriations that appropriated all of our foreign assistance. In that bill, I negotiated provisions that uh, supported by the administration and everyone actually, bipartisan, Uh, that said very clearly that anything that undermined a two-state solution any on from the palestinians or the israelis was something that this administration would oppose settlement expansion settlement uh, violence is part of what we indicated would undermine a two-state solution but you know Benjamin Netanyahu never uh, really believed in, nor fought for, nor uh, had a policy that he supported for a two-state solution, and it's very clear today that uh, what we warned about uh, has come true.
1: Well, how do you want to see the White House respond to these comments? I mean, do you want them to condition aid based on the fact that uh, the Israeli government should commit to a two-state solution, Or, or what do you want to see happen here from President Biden?
16: Well, we said that uh, anything that undermines a two-state solution, which is the policy of the United States, uh, we oppose. Secondly, I have early on called for a ceasefire. You you know, this is uh, really, uh, getting out of hand in terms of a regional war. It's spiraling out of control. I've called for a ceasefire uh, so that the hostages can be released. We don't know what's going on with them. Uh, this war that has uh, killed now 23, 24,000 Palestinians, it's it's catastrophic. Israel will not be secured. This is counterproductive to Israel's security. And so, Like what uh, I said right after I voted against Mm -hmm. the uh, authorization to go to war after 9-11, this could spiral out of control. And so this administration needs to understand that they have got to weigh in very quickly uh, to make sure that uh, Netanyahu understands that uh, this is going to escalate into a regional war.
1: Yeah, and I should note, you called for a ceasefire with no conditions. That sets you apart from the Democrats that you were running against in that California Senate race. But, Congresswoman, while I have you here, I do want to get your response to what we heard from Ambassador Nikki Haley tonight when she was asked, again, this question of whether the U.S. has ever been a racist country. This is what she told Jake Tapper. But
7: I refuse to believe that the premise of when they formed our country— was based on the fact that it was a racist country to start with. I refuse to believe that. I have to know in my heart and in everybody's heart that we live in the best country in the world and we are a work in progress and we've got a long
1: way to go to fix all of our little kinks. Did you agree or disagree with how she characterized that? Well, these are
16: not little kinks, first of all. Racism, institutional racism, is in the DNA of this country. When you look at uh, what has taken place, look at our Native Americans, the genocide of Native Americans. When you look at what is taking place as it relates to African Americans, uh, the 250 years plus of enslaving African Americans, and then you look at the disparities now uh, in our community in terms of health care, unemployment, the wealth gap, housing, you can't tell me that systemic racism does not exist, it's not just a little kink. Secondly, you have personal racism, which is hard to address, but I'll give you one Story that shows you why uh, we need to understand that I don't think she really understands racism. I was walking from the house building on Capitol Hill to the Capitol, and a man, a white guy, stopped me and told me I could not get into the members' elevator. And you know, we have uh, pens and I was going to vote. And he blocked me from getting into the elevator and told me I was not a member of Congress and it was for members only. I said, sir, I'm a member of Congress. And he, I showed him my pen and he said, whose pen did you steal? Now, this is an example of what personal racism is and how People of color constantly have to deal with this each and every day. But systemic racism is in the policies of this country. And just look at what they're trying to do in terms of eliminating diversity, equity and inclusion. They're trying to uh, not allow for an equal and level playing field. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. it's a very dangerous uh, position that she has. Uh, She's clueless.
1: Well, that's a shame. And I'm sorry that, that you had to deal with that, Congresswoman. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thanks for joining me tonight. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you. Thank you. Up next, as you heard Nikki Haley tonight at CNN's Town Hall, one point saying she believes no one is above the law. Former president and currently the GOP frontrunner suggesting something pretty different.
15: Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast.
12: With us, your hosts I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky.
15: And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes.
12: We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart.
1: Hack season three is available to stream now on Max.
11: Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.
17: Well, Nikki Haley says that no one is above the law, but that she would pardon Donald Trump if he's convicted. I'm Laura Coates in Washington,
0: D.C. And I'm Abby Phillip in New York. Haley tonight rejecting the former president's claims of total immunity.
7: Obviously, if a president is doing something and it's related to, you know, whether it's terrorist threats or something like that and people die, that's one thing. But do you get just total freedom to do whatever you want? No, that's never the way it was intended to be. There needs to be accountability. No one is above the law.
17: Well, I don't know what you were doing personally at 1.59 a.m. this morning, Abby, but I'll tell you where Donald Trump was. He was on social media and claiming that even presidents who, and these were his words, presidents who cross the line, that's the quote, should get total immunity. And he doubled down again tonight.
10: You have to leave immunity with a president. If a president is afraid to act, because they're worried about being indicted when they leave office. A president of the United States has to have immunity, and the Supreme Court's going to be ruling on that. If they don't have immunity, no president is going to act. You're going to have guys that just sit in office and are afraid to do anything.
17: Well, joining me now is Senate contributor and former Nixon White House counsel, John Dean. John, I'm so glad you're here. I can't think of a better person to have this conversation with. You and I frequently talk about this entirety, this entire issue. And Trump, as you know, is trying to suggest that the need for immunity when making hard decisions is more important than the prospective danger of a president who might break the rules and then not ever be held to account. Do you buy this argument from Trump?
18: Not at all. Uh, He's gone further than any president has ever even thought one might go. Of course, Nixon famously or infamously said, if a president does it, that means it's not illegal. But what he was talking about was something in the area of national security, much like Uh, The way uh, Nikki Haley cast it tonight, her understanding of what a presidential powers are, that there are some areas in national security where he might have to step outside the boundaries of the law. Uh, Several presidents have done that. Bush Cheney were indicted in Malaysia for uh, their torture activities. They could have been theoretically indicted here. But there's also a norm that's long existed around the presidency that presidents don't get indicted when they just are in the normal course of official duties have to take actions that might otherwise be on the other side of the law.
17: It's a really important point, and you think about the fact that there is not this chilling effect, prospectively, that Trump is talking about, that a president would just sit in his or eventually one day her Oval Office and twiddle the thumbs because they can't do anything because they might actually get prosecuted. There are whole lots of boundaries, are there not, for what constitutes an official act and when one would ultimately never be convicted or prosecuted in a case. I mean, cops are one example, right? We talk about the different things people can do while in law enforcement. Aren't there actual bounds of not only presidential immunity, but also presidential official conduct.
18: Absolutely. Uh, In Trump's tweet uh, last night and maybe his remarks again today, he's making an allusion to the fact that police people, rogue policemen, mm-hmm. uh, get away with uh, all kinds of activity. Well, that's not true. Uh, he's just not being specific. There are instances where there are qualified immunity for police to undertake certain actions, uh, but they don't have blanket immunity. Nobody does under our system. There is just no blanket uh, area where anybody in an official or unofficial capacity gets that kind of immunity.
17: I mean, if you had that carte blanche to do whatever you want, then you would essentially have someone being above the law and really completely immune to it for whatever reason they choose. Not quite how I think it's been contemplated, but the courts will decide. But separately, you know, Trump's legal team They've actually officially warned the Supreme Court, essentially, that if states are allowed to kick him off of the ballot, of course, this is talked about in Colorado, talked about in Maine, all about the 14th Amendment and the alleged engagement, that's what he says, in any insurrection, that if they are allowed to kick him off a ballot, there'll be, quote, chaos and bedlam. Now, as far as legal arguments go, I wonder what you make of that, I think, threat,
18: yeah, that's not a well, that's not a well received argument by most courts that somebody's going to have a tantrum or provoke a tantrum if you don't make them, uh, give them the decision they want. I'm, I'm in the process of wading through that brief in the, before the Supreme Court. Most surprised that 200 Republicans signed on to an amicus brief, uh, to support Trump. Uh, but they they were all due, uh, today. And so, uh, they're starting to come in. Uh, and we've got a pretty good look, and nobody really has made a very persuasive argument, although I can see the Supreme Court giving some process argument in this area of the 14th Amendment and its application, whereas I cannot see them giving him immunity that he really seeks much more so uh, than anything else. But I also doubt this court is going to uh, enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and declare he is ineligible. By
17: process, you mean that they 'll say something like "This issue should not rightly be before us. It has to go to maybe Congress or someone else. They want to pass that can or that hot potato down the road right
18: that the more i 've studied it, the more i 've read the briefs, uh, the more i 'm inclined to believe that 's what 's going to happen. this isn 't a, a decision they want to make uh, it would i 'd find it fairly shocking if they enforced the article uh, section three of the Fourteenth Amendment and said he 'd engage in a Uh, insurrection, and his office as president is included under the 14th Amendment. It's possible, doubtful.
17: Well, they're not a fact-finding trial court, so there is a real possibility, as you say. But there are many other cases they're looking at as well. John Dean, always so nice to speak to you and pick your brain. Let's go back to you, Abby. Abby.
0: Thanks, Laura. I want to bring in my panel here in New York, and John Avalon joins the table as well. I want to start, though, with this idea that Nikki Haley presented. So, first of all, she was pretty clear. She doesn't think that there's blanket immunity. Mm -hmm. But then she says uh, she would definitely pardon Trump, but only after he were convicted. Why is she carving out these kinds of qualifications for
11: that? So listen, I'm about as anti-Trump as you can get on the right, and I didn't actually hate this answer. Um, I think saying that let the course of uh, of the courts play out, let him be convicted. But then her point of the just think historically what it would do to our country to actually put an 80 year old man behind bars. Somebody who had access to the most classified information, co-housed with criminals, it is very unprecedented. And I know some people will come for me for saying we shouldn't put him behind bars if he's convicted, and we needn't you know to equally apply the rule of law. But I think that there is something to be said for if you can pardon him and he's out of public life and he's done. I think that would resonate with quite a few but people. Does
0: anybody think if you pardon him,
11: he'd go them. away? She says,
0: she says it would be very healing <laughs> Well, and
2: that's the, the problem. He well, wouldn't look, go this away. This goes
19: back, we just said John Dino, but this goes back to sort of Ford's pardon of Nixon, which he took a lot of political heat for, probably cost him re-election. And yet, decades later, he won the John F. Kennedy Library Profiles and Courage Award for doing just that, because it was unpopular, but in the light of history, was seen as the right thing in terms of healing divisions. I think the point Nikki Haley was making was... It's essentially a, a commutation. That's what it should yeah. be, not a pardon. Yeah, it's not a pardon. It's he needs legal accountability, but she's saying as a Republican, she would spare him the indignity of jail in order to, to heal the nation. It, it, look, good people can disagree about that. I think the key point is there needs to be legal accountability, and she probably should use the word commute the sentence, not But pardon.
9: again, the problem is he will not go away. He will never go away, sure. right? So. You can, you know, Ford did that to Nixon, and we didn't really hear from Nixon. That's not going to be that. So, in terms of healing, it's not going to be healing, particularly with him out there saying, "Oh, there's going to be chaos and riots and it- in a legal and- argument." Yes, yeah. right. And so that's part of the problem. But but yeah. Nikki Haley was doing something else here. I hear what both of you are saying. She is trying to thread that needle between. Conservative voters, MAGA mm-hmm. voters, mm-hmm. and which she, the Eyes on the Prize in New Hampshire, which is the 300,000 Democrats who've registered um, as either independents or, um, uh, right? And then, and the actual independents. I mean, we've, so uh, part of this is the dance that all of the Republican candidates have been having to do between, I can't totally anger the MAGA.
19: Hadn't worked out so well for him. Yeah. <laughs> well,
9: I
0: mean, No. But but that's what, that's the other piece yeah, she, of what she was doing politically. John, Let's call you it suggested out. That maybe she doesn't mean pardoning, but maybe she does mean pardoning because she knows what that word means mm-hmm. to the MAGA base.
10: Well, look, I don't know if there are a bunch of people who are keen on this particular issue who are making that distinction between pardon and commute. In fact, I think there are a great many people who don't necessarily even understand that commute is something akin to pardon, but slightly different. Mm So I think ultimately, in the end, I think what she is tapping into is this duality of this issue, that there are people who recognize that we need to have accountability. You cannot have a president who has blanket immunity. But at the same time, if you recognize, as Mm -hmm. all of the... You know, people, the economists and all the people who are the historians say that we are at a fever pitch when it comes to our politics. Then how do you throttle that down? And we have been trying to inject more politics into a wildfire when at this juncture there has to be some adult in the room at some juncture who comes in and tries to tamp down those flames. That
0: that adult is not going to be Donald Trump. I mean, look, he he is warning of bedlam. So this is getting ratcheted up. Meanwhile, all of the other people running against him are basically Mm -hmm. saying well, we're just gonna forget this all ever happened.
8: I mean, look, I think she may actually believe it's the right thing to do to pardon him if he's found guilty of what he's alleged of. And I don't think that's a negative idea. I don't think it's a misnomer. I mean, the reality is to Joe's point, there are significant tensions in this country politically and do you run the risk of allowing this guy who received 74 million votes be thrown into prison and just this idea that all of those people or a third of those folks just going to go home and say well it's no big deal it is what it is that's likely not the reality and so and so to her point i think it is important for someone who's trying to be the president of this country to try to instill unity and not further division. And I think that's Haley's point.
19: Yeah, I, I, think, I think that where, where the cynicism comes in is that we've seen a lot of folks on the right, after Donald Trump destroys Democratic norms, say, you know what, accountability would be too divisive for this country. We, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't impeach him. Well, yeah. We shouldn't pursue legal remedies. Okay. It's too divisive to hold Donald Trump accountable. And that's essentially what they threaten the Supreme Court with today. If you try to hold him accountable with the U.S. Constitution, 14, they'll be bedlam. They'll be riots. Which, by the
11: way, that, is a vote. But, but you have
19: you, to hold him uh, well, accountable, John. Correct. I mean, that's there my no choice. So they we were, there weren't agreement. Yeah, then we're have. in agreement, and and I think that's what's been missing. People calling for calm and healing after he's destroyed a democratic norm. Whenever right. okay. accountability is attempted, you, to be you can't you
8: can't allow the the healing until after the Correct. process it's, is it's complete. Correct, truth yeah. then reconciliation. Yeah. And
11: that was yeah. an important distinction Haley made. She didn't was not going to do a blanket pardon. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't going to do an advance. Mm-hmm. She wants the courts to convict him, and then it would be. And that's significant in a Republican right. primary. Ron DeSantis has not but, said that. All right, yeah.
0: everyone, stick around for us. So what did voters think? Uh, when they heard from nick heard from nikki haley tonight i'll ask a pollster frank luntz he's up next nikki haley answering voters questions at cnn's town hall tonight with 5 days before the new hampshire primary i want to bring in now pollster frank luntz frank you were there at tonight's town hall and you spoke with some of the voters in the audience what were they saying about nikki haley's performance
13: Well, I interviewed them before they walked in, and they all wanted, in a single word, clarity. Not just answers, but clear answers to questions that were on their minds. And they got that tonight. In fact, as they were leaving, they were very happy that they were there. The Haley people were ecstatic over her performance. Those who were undecided moved in her direction. But here's the problem. Hmm. For Republicans, I asked the question, if Nikki Haley isn't the nominee... Will you vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And more than half the people at this town hall didn't know or would be Biden voters. And that raises a very big question. Who exactly is coming into this primary? If it is dominated by independents that aren't traditional Republican voters, she's got a shot. But if this is the typical New Hampshire turnout, which is 80 percent Republican, 20 percent independent, then Donald Trump is going to win next Tuesday. As you're there on the ground
0: in New Hampshire, do you get the sense that voters there believe that this is still a live race? I mean, Donald Trump every day is saying this thing is over.
13: They don't believe it. They're not sure, but they don't believe it. They believe that their vote matters. They believe that New Hampshire, if Iowa makes a statement, New Hampshire makes the difference. And they believe that their vote matters. That said, there is a gap, a polling gap between Trump and Haley right now, that gap is significant. And Haley's going to need more events than just what happened tonight for her to close that gap.
0: All right, Frank Luntz, always good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. And over to you, Laura.
17: Well, I want to bring in CNN political commentator and Republican pollster Kristen Soltys-Anderson here with me at the Magic Wall. Kristen, I want to start with what's so important here. We're all wondering, of course, about the latest polling out of New Hampshire. What can you tell us about this?
20: So when we reallocate people who originally said they were voting for either Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy, candidates who have since dropped out of the race. We see that Donald Trump winds up with a very slim lead in New Hampshire. That's what's making next week's primary so exciting. This race is still close. Ron DeSantis, he says he's still in the race, but he is not currently a factor in New Hampshire.
17: I mean, this is quite a differential between DeSantis and Trump, let
20: alone Haley. But tell me, among moderates, does that make a difference here? Well, one reason why New Hampshire is such a good state for Nikki Haley and Such a tough, tough state for Donald Trump is that he does really well with conservatives and not as well with moderates. Iowa, only 17 percent of voters there are moderate. In New Hampshire, it goes all the way up to 36 percent. Much better terrain for Nikki Haley. So tell me a little bit about the New Hampshire GOP. Is it unique in and of itself or something different about that compared to, say, in Iowa? Yeah. So this primary is really interesting because independents make up a huge portion of who participates, especially in years when there's nothing going on on the Democratic side. If you look at 2012, that was a year where Barack Obama running for re-election. No reason for independents to participate in that primary. So they all came out in the Republican one. That's why we expect in 2024 a pretty large number of independents to make the decision there. How about the party ID issue here? What's going on there? Well, so the reason why this matters so much is Donald Trump has been giving Nikki Haley a hard time saying you're (laughs) only winning because you're so good among independents. But the reality is. He actually won independence in 2016, way back then. The fact that he did so well among independents in this primary is exactly why he beat Ted Cruz, was just coming off that Iowa win in 2016. Does it matter about college education in New Hampshire? So that is also a big factor here, and this is one thing that Nikki Haley is doing well with in New Hampshire, but has to work on nationally if she wants a path forward. In New Hampshire, she wins among college-educated, likely GOP primary voters by 12 points, but she's not winning them nationwide, and that's a number that's going to have to change if she has a path forward. Really important. Thank you so much for all the information. Kristen, stay with me, of course. Look,
17: Trump and Haley reportedly trying to nab a very key endorsement. It's from someone from South Carolina. They used to be in the race. What's the guess? Senator Tim Scott. So who is he gonna go with? We'll talk about it next. Axios reporting tonight that Donald Trump and Nikki Haley are battling for the endorsement of one senator from South Carolina by the name of Tim Scott. This ahead of Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. Now, CNN was the first to report that Trump called Scott right after the Iowa caucuses. And Haley and Scott have reportedly been texting but haven't yet connected by phone. Hmm. A very millennium about them. That's interesting. Everyone to talk about this now. I have um, not only Rena Shaw, Kevin Madden, CNN's McCann, and Tina and Eva McKendon, of course, our Magic Wall Extraordinaire, Kristen <laughs> Anderson as well. Let's just talk about for a second this battle for Tim Scott's endorsement. He, of course, was running for the presidency not too long ago. He did not fare well. He dropped it a long time ago, relative to them. Who do you think he goes with? And and the
15: why to me is so important. What do you think? I would say Trump. When he exited the field, the sense that I got from his team was that he had no appetite to endorse Nikki Haley. Certainly not right away. Why? Well, I think that there might be some history there. And then also, uh, he, um, he constantly criticized her while he was running as way too moderate to win in a Republican primary. And then when, when he entered the race, Trump was very, very favorable towards him. He, Trump, uh, he was one of the few people that Trump did not criticize. So I think someone as ambitious as Senator Scott, I covered his campaign closely, um, I think that he sort of sees this, this field right now and he lines up behind the former president. What I find
17: interesting is the idea of too moderate to win in a Republican primary, but that seems to be where you have to go to win in a general election. Being a polarizing figure is not going to bring in and envelop and make your tent bigger. But this idea of the history there, I mean, didn't Haley, wasn't she responsible for Scott even going into the position he's she in? appointed him, the, right? Yeah. yeah, she appointed
5: and him. And the tensions in New Hampshire politics, or I'm sorry, in South Carolina politics run very deep, right? We do, we do know that. But look, I, I look—I don't think this is as big an endorsement as we think In the way we usually look at endorsements like, oh, this is going to bring a wave of evangelical support, a wave of, you know, uh, cultural conservative support or donor support even. I think this is different because we've all been wondering like, hey, how is the field going to consolidate to finally take on Trump? And like this endorsement, which I think it will be of Trump, is going to actually show that the consolidation is taking place on the other side like there's a reckoning going on and a realization amongst a lot of republican voters that like tr- look trump's going to be our nominee tim scott wants a future in the party probably wants to be vp knows the gravitational pull inside the party is with MAGA crowd and he's going to get there before everybody else
17: oh you think he might be thinking about
4: it in the sense of not just
5: he, who the, the, he who wants a future in Maybe
4: being a VP. But he wants I, a I heard VP. Is that yeah. what you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I think yeah. so. And and that's why he even might be waiting until after New Hampshire. Some people close to him are saying that perhaps before this Tuesday. But look, there's a lot of time. There's February 24th is when South Carolina is the first in the South primary for the Republicans. So uh, there is time. But I think a couple things can be true here. I think Tim Scott, being the faith, person of faith he is, always leading with faith, might also feel like Donald Trump is the man for the moment. I, I, I think he's that kind of guy who would go back to such simplistic thinking. And then also, I do think that he and Haley have a lot of bad blood from those debates. I mean, they got nastier each time they met on the debate stage, and, and it seemed rather personal at some point. So, though privately Scott may acknowledge that she has what is needed to win in a general, beat a Democrat, there's a fair degree of positioning here uh, that leads you to think that maybe this guy is really just looking looking to pull the evangelical vote towards Trump.
17: I mean, look, when you talk about the contest of who demands and requires loyalty more, I think Trump wins in any event on that great idea of, yeah. look, you, you got to owe me, maybe not the other person. Right. But what's important to me here is too is, you know, there's the new Ariana Grande song, Yes and, I'm bringing pop culture because <laughs> <and> it's <laughs> night at night. Yeah. Um, what about what happens if she does not win South Carolina? If you're Nikki Haley, hey, yeah, you, you came in third, although she says it's two person race in Iowa, even if she captures New Hampshire, Yes, and can you actually then win your own state? If, if Senator Tim Scott does not endorse her,
20: is that all the marbles? This has always been the buzzsaw that she is headed directly for. New Hampshire was always gonna be a state where she had maybe a better shot, especially if other folks like Christy got out. But South Carolina, especially because it's her home state. Mm -hmm. The stakes are really high. You can't lose your home state. It it looks bad. And especially if Donald Trump is already, seems like he's romping to the nomination, you cannot have the kind of like stench of loserdom on your campaign, especially if it's your home state. I want to say one other thing quickly about Tim Scott as a potential pick. There's a lot of talk lately about Donald Trump wanting somebody who's going to be totally loyal to him, Mm -hmm. but also someone who's not going to necessarily outshine him. He's not necessarily looking for someone who has their eyes on a big, big prize themselves. But I think he'd be foolish if he overlooked Tim Scott, because Tim Scott has this very calm demeanor to him. It's a very interesting counterbalance, almost kind of the same role that Mike Pence played in 2016. I'm going to try to set people at ease. I'm going to bring over voters that I think I can hold on to that might be nervous about my candidacy. So we'll see if Donald Trump I, is I just hope that anybody who's making
5: that pitch in there for him doesn't say, hey, this is just like Mike Pence. I know,
20: that's oh probably the gosh. worst possible thing <laughs> yeah. you could say. But you
17: know, who is that? I mean, who is this elusive figure that might be the running mate for a Donald Trump?
15: Oh gosh, I I do not know. We you know we know that Christy Nome's name has been floated. Carrie Lake is out there. I was out there in Iowa stumping for him. I will it's not say, not Chris Christie. We know that it won't be Chris Christie. <laughs> but speaking of Christie, I think that there has been sort of an overemphasis of Christie voters moving over to Haley's camp. So I've been in New Hampshire. I've been speaking to these supporters and they think that she is doing too much to placate the MAGA wing. So there's a man in Washington, New Hampshire. He ran this pro Christie Facebook group and he says he's still going to vote for Christie, even though uh, Christie has dropped out of that the race because he told me tonight uh, that she lacks integrity and that she's a Trump enabler. So, these comments that she made tonight at our town hall that she would eventually uh, perhaps pardon Trump, it's really a liability with some of those voters, uh, especially in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, that's a fascinating point. If you think about this, Christie's whole
17: spiel, his whole platform, in part, aside from the issues that, you know, on the economy and, and beyond was a complete and total opposite to the idea of pardoning or not having accountability. So it makes sense that if you were buying into what he stood for and what he wanted, the idea that she would say that would be anathema to you for a lot of reasons. But you keep talking about what happened. Does she have a path to victory? Sanders or Haley. I I haven't heard one.
5: I mean, look, part of this is me sort of like the scar tissue from when I worked on campaigns. I worked on three and like reporters used to hold me to a very high level of scrutiny. They used to say, "Okay, how does Mitt Romney win the nomination and demonstrate that? And I would I would for 45 minutes go through my spiel charts, graphs, polls, you know, the, the whole talking points. And I would usually walk out with a lot of reporters saying, "Okay, well, you have a shot. We don't really have what the path looks like to 1,236 delegates. That's the end of the day. This is a delegate hunt for that many delegates, and until you can show me how you do that, where you're going to find the resources to do it, all the way through, you know, uh, March 19th and beyond, like it's it's just a it's a long shot argument.
17: Mm, A respected skeptic. I like that (laughs) in Washington D.C. Everyone, thank you. Stick around because next, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase has a message to Democrats. Be careful about all the MAGA bashing.
0: The CEO of one of the biggest banks, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, has a warning now for Democrats. He told CNBC that the Democratic Party should not be dismissing Trump voters.
19: I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA. The Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, hugging no. onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, could we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election oh, campaign.
0: He's talking a little bit there about civility, but is that also kind of a secret warning to Democrats? Mm,
9: that's also a little bit of Jamie Dimon hedging his bets just in case Trump gets back in, <laughs> you know. I mean, come on, Jamie. It's not, I mean, I was there when basket of deplorables was <laughs> was said. That is not the same thing that we're talking about with MAGA at all in terms of the violence, in terms of the belief system and the behavior. And look, I, I don't think, it, I think what's, helpful to Joe Biden is to continue to try to listen to everybody. But when you have a group that has said, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to hear from you, I don't care what you have to say, and that has perpetuated violence in this country, um, then it's okay to call them out. I mean, that's the other part of it. You have to call that out as well, particularly in drawing a contrast.
8: I mean, I think you can call it out, but I think some of those people are still seeking some type of a restitution of their dignity, which is what I think Jamie Dimon was speaking about. I mean, not every person who is MAGA. You mean all
9: the people who attacked was... our Capitol or?
8: Well, can I finish here? I don't of think everyone that's MAGA are extremists. <laughs> I do agree that some did act illegally. That's why they're in jail. But I think there are a whole lot of other people who think Trump is a representative, if you will, of some halcyon days that are now long gone for those individuals, these folks who are living in the Rust Belt, these folks who are living in middle America, who have now seen the country change drastically and are wondering, well, what does this mean for us? And I'm not saying Trump is the greatest arbiter or articulator of these views, but that's how they perceive him. And so Jamie is simply saying, don't disrespect these folks. And I don't think
19: he's wrong about that. No, look, we we, we obviously need folks who can build bridges in our politics, but there's a fundamental asymmetry here, right? He's talking about one comment made by Hillary Clinton once, one comment made by Barack Obama once that were made famous by right-wing echo chambers saying that that represented what they saw as the condescension of folks on the far left against what Donald Trump does in terms of his fundamental divisive rhetoric every single day that seems to get a pass. And and I think the, the challenge is how can you say, look, Obviously, not everyone who supports Donald Trump is an extremist or a hater, and you do need to reach right. out to folks and build broader coalitions, and Democrats need to be doing that. And that does say—that uh, does require feeling their pain, to use a Clintonism, yeah. Yeah. right? It does say—and it, it not demonizing people you disagree with. But to pretend that's a problem primarily on the left, when the greater when the greater accelerant of, of national divisions intentionally is Donald Trump on a daily basis, that misses, I think, the full spectrum. And Trump,
0: I mean, did— and does regularly say that the enemy of the United States is coming from within mm-hmm. It's other Americans and people on the left. He says that all the time.
10: Look, and Nancy Pelosi has said that the enemy is quite literally in the House, referring to her colleagues. So, look, I just think if we want civility, we have to choose it. If we want civility, that we have to demand it. I think that you can take President Trump out of the equation. Uh, MAGA has become a slur that can be used by the left uh, to paint as a broad, broad a brush or as narrow but, a brush but, as
19: necessary. But that's a term people call themselves exactly. on the right. That's no, not no, a pejorative. The, 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 right. Look, right. You, can, you
10: can take the same word. It means different things to different people. And so, for instance, you can have Joe Biden show up in Westchester and say that Mike Lawler is the type of Republican that he used to be able to work with. And in 30 minutes, you have the DNC sending out emails saying that MAGA, Mike is at it again, and that we have to elect a Democrat to replace him. So what I'm saying is that, again, these let's, words but, have... I mean, look... It sounds like, first of all, Biden being civil. John's point, Biden is, being John's point civil is
9: important, and, though. What we're ta- we are talking about people who call themselves MAGA. That's right. one part of it. So we're not supposed to call them what they call no, themselves. No, no. That's one thing. No, first that's of a, all... No, hold I, on, I, let I, me finish. I, that's a definitional piece. And the second piece is to what Shermichael was talking about. Yes, we saw after 2016, the largest determinant of Trump voters were people who had... Um, fears about the changing Mm -hmm. world, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we have tried to reach out to them. And people... are you kidding me? How about the infrastructure bill? How about that's trying to create more jobs? No, How I'm talking about what Shermichael is thermal. talking
10: about, and I think what most people are talking about, is dignity and their humanity. And so, yes, you can sit here and say that there are people. Look, I think I have said, I think Shamichael has said, I think the vast majority of Republicans have said, if you went down to the Capitol, you used our flag to try to break glass at the people's house, you went into that building, you should be held accountable. The but the overall majority...
19: The vast majority of Republicans are, not the Republicans are or
10: respectfully. Or the people who are
9: or who are threatening, who? you know, individuals in the name When's, of I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't remember I, I do seeing see that
10: email coming from the RNC. I don't remember that. that, that. <laughs> are
9: you kidding me? Let me just show you my feed. There's plenty no, of it. You no, go, Let me let let just
0: not. ask a question
10: yeah. here.
0: Sure, Michael, you mm-hmm. can get in on this. Ahead of the 2022 20, midterms, yeah. President Biden gave a speech where he denounced, you know, the MAGA wing of the Mm -hmm. Republican Party. And he was really criticized for it. And the argument was that voters would hold that against him. He was alienating people. The midterms rolled around. Mm -hmm. Republicans' wave was squashed, essentially. didn't exist. I mean, is this really the electoral issue that matters the most to voters? Or is this just something that people say because talking about civility is... In that context,
8: I mean, I think it's an important factor or component of, of modern politics, if you will. But I think most voters care about the economy. I think they care about immigration. I think they care about other issues that are more kitchen table way, that impact the, the, them a daily. a lot of
0: voters care about democracy, too. And I'm not about I'm not,
8: extremism I'm not negating that fact. taking but over I, our But country. what I'm saying and is that I just democracy. don't believe that that particular component will change anyone's mind. But from the eyes of many MAGA Republicans, I think that does matter. And I think there is a considerable amount of those individuals who do believe, as as Harvard Professor Michael Sandel calls it, that there's these East Coast elitists with this meritocracy hubris that looks down upon them. And we hear it very often that they look down upon them. If only they would have done better, become more educated, they would be well-cultured, well-read, well-traveled, who well-versed.
18: That? Who's, try- it's, who's it's, saying that? It's, it's the, the idea.
8: I'm not saying that anyone's directly saying that. But that's part
9: that. of the it's caricature the that the
12: that right go, that wing is puts not on That goes the back, back. to there, there is, there is,
10: there is a all. vocal, vibrant, mainstream portion of the Democratic Party that unilaterally labels people on the right insurrectionists, and it's dishonest to sit here at Only this the deck and
8: pretend that that
19: not true. But it's used as a blanket term. That is certainly not true. That is not true. Even what I've quoted the President Biden saying, saying the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, he
10: took pains to say it's not everybody. It's okay. not everybody when they don't want it to be everybody. And then when they campaign with the brass knuckles, it most assuredly is everyone, okay. including the person on the John, I John, I John. We have to leave
0: all it right. there. Yeah. This was a fascinating discussion. <laughs> we'll probably use another hour to talk about all of that. Everyone, thank you very much. And up next for us, the damning report on the Uvalde Elementary School massacre. But what will it end, end up meaning for those families of the 19 children and the two teachers who were killed that day?
17: An unimaginable failure. The DOJ releasing a damning report today on wide-scale law enforcement failures that played out during the 2022 school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The nearly 600-page report ticks through failures in leadership, in tactics, training, in the police response to the massacre at Robb Elementary. It paints a picture of confusion and cowardice. 19 children and two adults, their teachers, died that day, one of the nation's worst school shootings. Joining me now to discuss Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents Uvalde. Texas State Senator, thank you so much for being here today. When, when you see this report, I mean the description, um, talking about acting with no urgency, cascading failures, the Attorney General saying that the people of Uvalde, the community, deserved better When you look at all of this, what stands out to you in this first full official account?
21: Well, thank you, Laura, for continuing to tell this story because it needs to be told. Um, I think that what, what, what we see more than anything, it justifies everything that we've said, it justifies and gives support to everything that your own network was able to break along the way. There is not a whole lot of new evidence here. We All along we've been seeing this failure, but what it does do is it codifies it all into 600 pages for the first time ever in black and white. And on the front of this document, there's a seal from the Department of Justice that tells us exactly that all of the law enforcement on this scene failed and failed miserably and failed these children And yes, they deserved better from those law enforcement officers, but they also deserved better from policymakers that were too weak and too cowardly to ever ever have avoided this in the first place. Cowards like Ted Cruz and others who have failed to put an assault weapons ban in place to keep guns like this away from a young man who just needed to have, we just, we cannot allow this to happen again, Laura. We must do something and you know, we need to get politicians to do the right thing here.
17: Gosh, it makes, you, know, you have to almost close your eyes just trying to process and, and contemplate what those 77 minutes were like. Terrified students, terrified children, um, adults and parents begging for law enforcement, more than 300 of them, to go onto the scene. And the attorney general says, had they just followed generally accepted practices, lives would have been saved. I mean, the report, Senator, specifically calls out then-school police chief Pete Arredondo, then-acting Uvalde police chief Mariano Pargas, and Uvalde County sheriff Ruben Nolasco, who, by the way, is now running for re-election. I understand that family members are, are absolutely frustrated they are demanding accountability for those failures so what should accountability look like at this stage
21: well Laura it should be even beyond those three gentlemen it should be about the Department of Public Safety who had 96 officers on site Steve McCraw the head of that agency said in a private memo that your network uncovered relax nobody's going to be fired here and indeed nobody was the one man that they said was fired was uh, given retirement benefits. The other Texas Ranger is still on the force getting paid while he sits on his couch by the citizens of the state of Texas. Accountability is absolutely firing these people that failed these children so grossly. Accountability is absolutely bringing criminal charges for some of those officers that w- should have taken command and control of the situation, including DPS agents. But sadly, the district attorney in this community will not do any of those things because it means going after state officers that should be held accountable, Accountable, and she simply will not do that.
17: I certainly wonder what the outcome and result of this report will be, but for all of the parents and the families of those loved, loved ones who have passed, if they could just have one second, one minute back with them, what it would do. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you, Laura. I want to thank you all also for watching our special coverage tonight. The news continues right after this.
12: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that.